Amen. So we're worshiping away a little while ago, and I'm hearing this sound, and it's like the alarm on a phone, and I'm thinking, sounds like it's right under my seat. I'm like, come on, you know, I'm looking at Paul and Jody all judging. Ryan gets all quiet, Ryan starts praying, it just continues. Now I'm really irritated, you know. It's my phone. Eleven oh nine, man. The alarm went off. And what's freaking me out right now is I just hit whatever I saw first. So it, I might have hit pause and it may go off again. So we'll see. Uh, but we do want you to pray. Like if you're not on that journey, just go to the app, hit the 40 days of prayer thing, join it. It'll show you how to do that. Uh, I've heard some great stories. You know, I, I, there's one guy in our church. I, I didn't actually independently verify this, but I heard this about him. He's a retired gentleman, big guy, and he's got knee problems. And he's like, look, getting down on my knees is not the problem. It's getting up. That's the problem. And so he's praying in his pool, uh, which I thought, you know, that's commitment. It's amazing. I was walking by our school, and, and our, one of our first grade teachers, who's a member here, came running out. She saw me through the doors. And she said, i got to tell you something. The whole first grade is kneeling at 1109 and praying. The whole first grade. She's like, I'm trying to figure out how to like, have all the parents do it. Like, this is amazing. She said, the kids hear that alarm. And they're all like, Mrs. Sandoval, we need to pray now. And they all pray together, which is awesome. So pray. Pray for you. Pray for your family. But guys, pray for our city. Pray for this nation. Pray for our students. And pray about getting involved, if you would. We're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is really what it is. It's a personal letter to this church that he planted. And we are nine weeks into this deal, and I want to revisit something I said last week. So last week, I said that in the first half of the letter, Paul comes to me and he comes to you and he says, all right, look, I don't know who you think you are. I don't know how you feel like you are. I don't know who you want to be. But if you're a Christian or if you become one, here is who you are through faith in Christ. And then in the second half of the letter, he says, all right, now that you know who you are, we're going to talk about how you live, and you live out of who you are. By the way, that's true all the time. You live out of your identity, and so he's like, your identity, if you're a Christian, has changed. It's radically different. You are a new person. This is who you are in Jesus, and last week we entered into that second half of the letter, and he's going, all right, now, in light of who you are, here's how you are to live. And you say, well, that's wonderful, but I haven't been here for all the previous weeks. Can you sum up the who I am piece, at least if I become a Christian? Yes. So just hitting the high points, Paul comes to us and says, look, if you're a believer in Jesus, well, then what that means is that you've been chosen by God, and you've been chosen by him, not just to be his servant, not just to be his subject, not just to be a citizen of his kingdom, but think about this for a minute, to be his treasured possession. You are the treasure of the Lord if you're a believer in Christ. And you were chosen by him before the foundation of the world, which means that before you showed up on the scene and did anything good or bad, anything that would qualify you or disqualify you, God said, no, 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 you're the one. I'm setting my love upon you. You were chosen of God, but it's better than that if that isn't enough. You're also adopted by God. So again, not just a subject, not just a servant, not just a citizen. All those are true, but a son or daughter of God. He uses that family kind of language and relationship, and he's calling to mind all of the tenderness of that, all of the leverage of that, all of the access of that, all of the power of that, all of the love of that. But if that's not enough, then you're redeemed by God. You've been purchased by him. You're like, well, then what is the price that he paid for me? Because that settles a question for me, which is my own value and worth. To purchase you, God gave the life of his infinitely valuable son. That's what you're worth. So says God. 
And then, you know, if that isn't enough, then you're forgiven. Like all of the failures of the past, all of the failings of the present, all of the failures of the future, already covered under the infinitely powerful blood of Jesus. Like you are a completely forgiven person. So he's coming to us and he's going, hey, by the way, that's who you are. And he makes it very clear again and again and again and again and again. Like he is painstakingly making the point that you are all of those things in Christ Jesus, that is to say, as the result of his perfect life lived in the place of your imperfect one. His sacrificial death died to pay the penalty for you to God. His death, his burial in which all of your failures were buried in him. And beyond that, his resurrection, from which he rose from the grave to proclaim authentically a message of abundant eternal life. It's like Everything that you are, everything that I am, we are in Christ Jesus, which means, by the way, that this is really not a letter to us about us. This is a letter to us about him. He's the hero. He's the champion. He's the victor. He's the main character of the play. So in the first half of the letter, he says that. And then, as we started to see last week in the second half of the letter, he's going, okay, in light of that... Yeah, live differently. And he begins today by telling us how not to live. It's remarkable. He says this in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify, and I love this. He says, in the Lord. Why does that matter? He's going, listen, there's a spokesperson here, and it isn't me, Paul. Like, I am filled with the spirit of the living God. The spirit of Jesus lives in me, and Jesus has a message for you that I have the privilege of writing down and delivering to you. So the one who lived for you, the one who suffered for you, the one who died and was buried for you, the one who has risen for you, the one who has ascended to heaven, the one who intercedes for you and advocates for you, all of the time before the Father has a message for you. If you're in him, here's the message. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you who believe in Jesus must, it is mandatory language, no longer walk, which means no longer live. How? You must no longer live the way you did before you received this brand new identity in Christ. Like you used to have a different identity and we live out of our identity. So you lived that way. But you have a new identity. He's like, don't live the way you did. You're new. You're different. And in the event that any of us have forgotten what that was like, he then describes it. And here's the reason he describes it. Because he wants us, Christian or non, to look at ourselves and go, is this me? In whole or in part. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And here comes the reminder. He says, in the futility, and it means meaninglessness or uselessness of their minds. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. What does darkness do? Well, just go into a completely dark room. It blinds you. It makes your eyes of no use. It makes you go like this. (laughs) Darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God, who is himself light. So then there's no light. You're alone in the dark, or, well, maybe you're with others, but they're in the dark too, so it's not much help because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And that which is hard is impenetrable, and it's also unfeeling, which is a point he makes. He says they have become callous, and so then what does everyone in this condition do? All of us. What do we all do in this condition when we're living out of that identity? He says they have given themselves up to sensuality. Why? Because we have desires that drive us. Desires for meaning, for usefulness, for significance, for purpose. Desires for justice. Desires for love. Desires for peace. Desires to feel valuable. He's like, this is all you got right here. 
So here's your option. And we all do it. He says they've given themselves up to sensuality. And then he uses the word greedy. He says greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why? Because the last one we tried didn't work. So we're thinking, I don't know. We've got to take it up a notch, you know. Increase the intensity. Let's, let's, let's go with this. Okay, well, that didn't really work. All right, let, let's go with this. Okay, well, that didn't really work. Okay, well, let's go with this. And you know what? Maybe it works for a day, a week, a month, a year. But at some point, it stops satisfying the desire that we're, we're being driven by and that we're desperately trying to find satisfaction for. But the question, I think, and it's a philosophical question, is if you just kind of back out of that equation for a minute, ask yourself, where did that desire come from? I mean, if there is no God, there's no creator, there's nothing outside of the material realm, if when we die, that's it, so there's no afterlife, if we really are nothing more and nothing less than products of the material universe in which we live, then why would any human being, much less every human being universally, desire something that isn't even possible, like meaning, like purpose, like for justice, like value? And yet we all have it. Where did that come from? Because it certainly isn't anything to suggest, if there is no God, that that's even a possibility. C.S. Lewis, so to quote him for the second time today, in Mere Christianity, says this. Follow his logic. It's really brilliant. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. In other words, you don't, you're not born desiring things that aren't even within the realm of possibility. He gives examples. He says a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. So the baby is desiring something that exists. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. So the duckling is desiring something that exists. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. So here again, we're desiring something that exists. And then here's his conclusion. He says, if I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And the good news, going back to the first half of this letter, is that in addition to all of those other things and several others as well, Paul says, you know what, that other world, that belongs to you and Jesus. Like, Jesus has bought and paid for that other world for you. And even though you're not there yet, it's yours. So then since Jesus really is the key to the satisfying of all of our passions and desires... What is C.S. Lewis really saying? He's going, guys, in all of your groping, in all of your walking around in the dark, in all of your I'm going to try this and I need more of this and I'm going to get rid of that and maybe maybe this would do it. And you know what? Let's ramp up the intensity over here and I think maybe this is it and it feels great for a week, a month, a year. And then it leaves me more empty than I was before. Like in all of that, the person that you're pursuing is Jesus. He's saying, really, ultimately, your desires exist to drive you through dissatisfaction, ultimately, to the one who alone can satisfy you. And the point that Paul's making here is that when we find him and find satisfaction in him, what do we do? We stop living like we used to. We start living out of this new identity. We start to live differently, which is where he's going next. In verse 20, he says, but that meaning that matter of our manner of seeking to satisfy your passions and desires, okay, is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that in fact you have heard about him and were actually taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And again, what's the truth? It's that our desires exist to drive us to him and can only be satisfied in him. And so then what does that truth compel you to do? 
When that truth really lays hold of you, when it grabs hold of your heart, when it digs deep within you, it compels you to stop seeking to satisfy your desires the way you used to. Or to use the language that he uses here, to put off your old self, which belongs, he says, it's a matter of ownership to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires that lie to you by telling you that if you'll just try this, if you'll just take it up a notch, if you get rid of that, if you own this, okay, this is finally going to be the thing that works. And conversely, it compels you to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The mind matters. It's not the whole of you, but man, it's a significant part of you. This isn't the only place that Paul says we need to be renewed where? In here. It's one of the reasons why we beat the drum of personal worship, of getting together and studying the Word like we're doing now, of the podcast that comes out every Thursday that's giving a much fuller explanation and understanding of this book than we're doing on Sundays. Spiritual formation nights, all of these different things that we can participate with what the Spirit is trying to do in us. God's saying, listen, give me some room, give me some space, give me some stuff to work with. Let me mold you and shape you and change you and satisfy you. Let me replace the lies with the truth is the idea. This compels you to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness, which sounds amazing, but but what does it look like? Because now he's going to give us a bunch of examples, and, and here's what the examples aren't. They aren't of you or me going, okay, I have a new identity, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I'm just not going to do this anymore. They're of you and me going, you know what, I have a new identity. I'm finding satisfaction in Christ, and I'm freed from this. But I'm not just going to stop in some sense that. I'm going to start its exact opposite. It's the 180 reversal. It doesn't call us to neutrality. It calls us to advance, but in a different direction. Look at all the examples he gives. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, do what? Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body, meaning the body of Jesus, who came into the world and didn't just say, look, I'm going to tell you the truth. He said, I am the truth, and I live within you by my spirit, like the truth lives in you. And when that lays hold of you, you're like, I can't be so false. And I need to be an advocate for that which is true. It's proactive. This time he starts with a positive example. He says, be angry. It's a reference to righteous anger. Jesus got angry, like really furious a couple of times. You're like, whoa. You read about it. And look, as the spirit of Jesus lays hold of you, as your mind is renewed and shaped with his word and his passions become yours, the truth of the matter is you ought to get angry too, just at the right things. Injustice should anger us. Oppression should anger us. Racism should anger us. Like there's a whole list of things that should make us righteously indignant and angry. Be angry at the right things, he's saying, and do not sin. Don't engage in unrighteous anger. Well, what is that? It comes from selfishness. It comes from pride. It's vengeful. It's spiteful. He's like, oh my, don't spend much time on that. Do not let the sun go down on that kind of anger. Don't brood over it. Don't ruminate over it. And in doing that, you give the opportunity to the devil. He's like, don't do that because he loves to get involved in your anger and and fan its flames and ruin you with it. Then he gives another example. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him get a job. Let him labor and do honest work with his own hands so that he may have what? 
something to share with anyone in need. He goes from a taker to a giver. That is a remarkable transformation. He continues, he says, let no corrupting talk. And what kind of talk is that? Because the opposite that he's about to give us makes it clear that it's talk that tears other people down. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear as opposed to condemnation. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the idea being by the way you use your mouth and by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, which brings us to the final example, which is kind of a catch-all beginning in verse 31. He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And do the opposite, and what is that? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. But how? As God, in Christ, forgave you. And how did God in Christ forgive you? Because it's the key. He did it on a cross. So biblical Christianity doesn't come to the world with a list of do's and don'ts. It doesn't come. Our message isn't, don't do that, but instead do this, because that's wrong, and this is right. It's not it. And our response to the decay that we see in ourselves and in our families and in our city and in the world is not, don't do this because that's wrong, but do this instead because this is right. Or at least it shouldn't be. Our response should be to take ourselves and the people in our family and people in our city and the people of this world to the cross. Where Christ, who is the truth, died for all of my falsehoods and yours. Because when that lays hold of a person, like when it gets inside your heart deep, you stop being false. And you start advocating for the truth. Get the idea? The cross where Christ suffered the righteous anger of God for all of our unrighteous anger, which calls us to deal with our unrighteous anger and set it aside and start getting angry about the right things where Christ was impoverished, not just of heaven, but of earth. Like he was impoverished of his own life. So how can I take from others if I belong to him? I need to be making space for generosity in my life where Christ was torn down so that we might be built up. So how can I tear others down? I need to be in the building up business is the idea where Christ became a man of sorrow so that we could know his joy. So how then can I grieve the Holy Spirit? And then lastly, where Christ suffered death to forgive us, which leaves us with no option but to forgive other people. And by the way, when you take a look at what Jesus says about forgiveness, he really does leave you with no option but to forgive other people. And when his forgiveness really lays hold of you, you suddenly find a capacity that you didn't have. And it's the capacity to do that. I'll give you one example. On April 18 of 1942, an airman named Jacob DeShazer, together with about 80 other guys, volunteered for a mission that became known as the Doolittle Raid. So the Doolittle Raid was the first Allied bombing in Japan, and it was done as a response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Sixteen planes flew out with all these guys in it. They accomplished their mission. They sent and bombed incendiary devices, five cities, including Tokyo. The problem is none of them found the landing zone. They didn't make it into free China where they were supposed to land. Fifteen of the planes went down in enemy territory. Most of the guys were smuggled out of there by the Chinese resistance fighters, but eight guys, including this man, were taken by the Japanese, and they were put into Japanese prison camps, and they spent 40 months straight enduring systematic beatings, torture, Starvation rations, these guys were skin and bones. 
34 of the 40 months they spent in solitary confinement. Four of them died. Pretty tough deal. And at some point, this man, Jacob DeShazer, asked his Japanese captors for a Bible. And in the providence of the Lord, they gave him one, which is remarkable. And he began to read it, and it, it took him to the cross. And later on in life, he wrote this down. He said, I eagerly began to read its pages. I discovered that God had given me, wait a minute, new spiritual eyes. It comes with a new identity, a new heart. I'm different suddenly. And what is the difference? Like, how did it manifest? He said, he gave me new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to a loving pity, so much so that after the war, he was released, he came back home, he went to Bible college, he got a degree, he got married, he went back to Japan with his two wife as a missionary to Japan, and they went and they set up their ministry in the city of Nagoya, which is the same city that his plane had bombed. Incidentally, he was the guy that released the bombs, like that was his role in the bombing mission. Transformation. In January of 1949, he heard that the judge, the Japanese judge who had condemned all eight of those guys, executed three of them straight out, sent the other five to these camps, himself was facing a death sentence. He had been convicted by a military tribunal. And this man, Jacob DeShazer, took up the cause and fought to spare the man's life. It's remarkable. In 1950, he sensed a spiritual opposition. And so and I say this because this is something we're doing. He devoted himself to fasting and prayer for 40 days. And he attributed that season of fasting and prayer, like all these different conversions came from it, according to him, including the conversion of a Japanese man named Mitsuo Fuchida, who happened to be the commander who led the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And so within a few months of that guy's conversion, these two guys teamed up as like a preaching duo, and they went around preaching the message of forgiveness. Can you imagine that? I mean, you've got the Japanese commander of the bombing of Pearl Harbor preaching alongside one of the guys who bombed Japan in response for the bombing of Pearl Harbor and set five of their cities ablaze like furnaces. Thousands of people were converted. This man, Jacob DeShazer, and his wife, Florence, served as missionaries to Japan for 30 years, and they planted 23 churches. Life well spent. But why did they do that? Because the Word of God brought him to the cross. And here's what you can't do. You can't stand at the foot of the cross and go, you know, I see you, but I'm going to continue in my falsehood. I'm going to keep tearing people down. I'm going to continue to be unrighteously angry. I'm going to keep stealing stuff. Grieving the Holy Spirit really isn't a big deal to me. And I'm going to withhold forgiveness, knowing that you've forgiven me and it cost you that. It doesn't work. Look, if you're really in Christ, Paul's going, okay, then you need to reckon with that. You need your mind renewed. You need to come to the, the truths about what that looks like and about what that means and about what that offers and about who Jesus is and about the satisfaction that you're looking for and all this other stuff that you can, in fact, indeed were designed only and exclusively to find in Him. And when that happens, you won't do this anymore. You'll do less and less of this and more and more of this. 
And he says, must. He doesn't say, might. I don't know. It'd be a good idea for you to think about it. He's like, no, 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 no. Transformation, like if you're in Jesus, really, like then you will really and progressively learn to live for Jesus. So as we enter into a time of reflection, I'm just going to ask you some questions and just let you kind of work through these things with the Lord. So the first thing is, are you walking in darkness or light? So I'm just going off of what we used to be and and sometimes still are. Are you walking in darkness and light? And what are you cultivating in your life? You know, like, cause the light part, I think, is easier, at least in terms of to define. Like, you just go, you know, your word, for example, is a light unto my feet, right? And a light for my path, a lamp for my, like, or are you cultivating darkness? Which are you feeding? Cause that's the one that lives. It's the one that grows. Do you feel alienated from God or do you feel close to God? Because as we sang in one of these songs, he's the father who's like waiting for us to come home and he runs to us with open arms. He's just saying, come on, let's go. Is your heart hard or soft? Is it feeling or is it unfeeling toward God and the things of God? And some of the things of God are people. How are you seeking to satisfy your desires? Because they all exist to point you to Jesus to drive you to him. Because the truth that is in Jesus is that he is the one who alone can satisfy them, okay? Why don't we stand and pray together? And As we do, I just want to remind you that um, during the last song, we have a prayer team that kind of makes its way out around the sides of the room and maybe in the back. And, and if you want to slip out during the song and go pray with them, please do. Um, or you can pray after the service. But... Uh, But let's just interact with some of this, and I'll give you some space to do that as we go, okay? Father, we praise you that you are a great God who, as we sang, is so good. Lord, that in your good you have overcome, and infinitely so, all of my bad. God, Jesus, who is the truth, suffered and died for my falsehood and the falsehood of all who claim that death as a sacrifice for them. Just take a minute and talk to the Lord about areas in your life in which maybe now you're false and just ask him to change your heart that you might become an advocate for the truth.